Hello, and welcome to the latest Aon Pensions podcast, focused on providing risk settlement insights to help you size up your de-risking options. I'm your host, Karen Gainsford, a principal consultant in Aon's risk settlement group, and I'm joined today by Martin Bird and Hugh Evans. Martin, Hugh, could you let our listeners know a little bit about your background? Hi, Karen. Yeah, I'm Martin Bird. Uh, I head up the risk settlement group here at Aon, helping clients understand and measure longevity risk and then appropriate structure and execute all kinds of different de-risking deals, whether that's bulk annuities, so buy-ins or buy-outs, or indeed lots of experience in the longevity swaps market since it, it got going in 2009. Hello, I'm Hugh Evans, a director at Best Trustees. We're one of the bigger firms on professional pension scheme trustees. I myself have been a professional trustee for about five years. I currently have nine clients ranging in size from about £17 million under management to over £2 billion. Great. Okay. So today we're going to focus on longevity swaps as a risk settlement option. So how's the market shaping up and how can schemes decide whether longevity swaps are right for them? So Martin, to, to get us started, could you provide an update on the longevity swap market? Yeah, sure. I think the short answer is it's busy. It continues to be extremely busy. We've come a long way since 2009. But back in those days, the kind of market was dominated by some of the very large pension schemes doing deals with investment banks. Um, so kind of classic development of a, of a market with an intermediary investment bank finding solutions. But wind the clock on to today and the, and the market has really opened up. Now seeing you know, longevity swaps being executed by a whole variety of different pension funds from the very largest to, to much smaller ones starting to come on stream. And a real mix of structures have, um, have developed over that period. So, so whether that's a relatively straightforward transaction with an insurer you know, supported by reinsurance in the background or at the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, some of the larger funds starting to set up their own insurance vehicles or offshore captives to deal more directly with that longevity reinsurance market capacity. So, so a real mix of things going on, lots of different structures continuing to evolve. Uh, lots of activity. And of course, it's not just pension schemes that are um, making use of longevity swaps and the reinsurance capacity. The, the insurers who are busy writing bulk annuities are also big consumers of longevity reinsurance as well. So that's important for them from a uh, solvency to capital perspective. It's a lot more efficient for them to hedge longevity risk than to actually keep it on their balance sheet. So, so they're keeping the uh, the longevity reinsurance busy. Okay. So if, if we focus in on, on pension schemes that have been using longevity swaps, so what sort of types of schemes is it that, that use them? Are there any particular features that make longevity swaps particular for them? Uh, so I think it's fair to say probably most pension schemes are now actively thinking about longevity risk, understanding how big it is uh, and where it kind of features in, in the de-risking trajectory. Particularly when you think over the last decade or so, there's been such a huge effort on better understanding investment risk and a huge amount of work done to, to reduce that. So, so longevity risk for mo most pension funds now is an increasingly dominant risk and one, one which is being far more actively managed than, than it has in, uh, in previous years. I, I think the clients, uh, the schemes where it's, it's featuring most prominently are probably twofold. Firstly, those schemes that are still working their way through investment de-risking programs and probably don't have enough headroom, whether that's from a collateral perspective or whether that's from an um, investment return perspective, to go down an annuity route, but are very keen to do something about longevity risk exposure. And so a, a swap fits into that portfolio very neatly. Or it's just schemes that are very keen on de-risking, but simply 
you know, aren't well enough funded to be able to buy an annuity and therefore, again, able to slot a longevity swap in to at least take some of the risk off the table while they continue to um, to plug the deficit in other ways. And, and of course, there are a number of schemes that are in long-term runoffs and not thinking about annuities at all. But again, still in that category of thinking, well, one of my big risk exposures is still longevity, so I ought to do something about it. And again, longevity swaps starting to feature feature in those portfolios too. So all kinds of different schemes looking at this stuff. Probably the, the big common theme is the investment portfolio constraints that determine quite whether it's annuity um, or swap that's most appropriate. Okay. Hugh, as a, as a trustee, what are your views on longevity swaps? Well, I think they're potentially very useful uh, tool in the de-risking uh, toolkit. A lot of my focus as a trustee is on investment efficiency, by which I mean maximizing the reward that you get for every uh, unit of risk that you're taking. And so one of the common themes um, is when you've done some de-risking, you start to see the longevity components as being the biggest component left. And at which point that's the uh, time to start considering how you take that longevity risk off the table. And as Martin said, you've really got a choice of two in practice, um, which is either longevity swap or the annuity. If you're substantially de-risked and well-funded, then the annuity starts to look attractive. Um, if you've sold, still some way to go on your de-risking journey, then longevity swap starts to become more important. And then you sort of get into a question as to how bespoke do you make it, how commoditized uh, is it possible to go, which again, you know, it's all about uh, cost effectiveness. Okay. And on your, on your portfolio schemes, have you had any experience yet of seeking pricing or transacting on swaps? So I inherited one uh, longevity swap, which I'm currently in the process of converting into an annuity. This is after it's run for a number of years and we're much further down our de-risking journey. So that's proving quite interesting. Um, we also looked at um, a longevity swap on one of my bigger schemes and decided that actually the annuity was better value at the time. I think right now, um, after we've had much madness in the stock market, um, we might have reached a different conclusion. Um, it's, it's very much going to be driven by uh, the state of your reserves and sort of what investment growth you need in future. Um, which sort of dictates how much sort of capital you can spare to, to back the uh, the annuity or otherwise you end up going down the longevity swap route. It's interesting to hear Hugh comment on com- converting a swap into an annuity. I, th- I think that's going to be a common feature in years to come. We, we've certainly seen clients that couldn't figure out how to get an annuity in, in previous years into the portfolio, so went down the swap route wind the clock on kind of investment performance has materialized further de-risking has taken place and, and funding levels have improved and therefore the annuity becomes much more within reach but of course if you've got a longevity swap you then need to convert it and i think that just underscores the importance of even if you've got no plans to go down the annuity route when you put your longevity swap in place making sure it's sensibly future proofed so that if circumstances change and you, and you are able to go down that route being able to flip the swap into an annuity at a later date um, it, it is achievable i'm starting to see a number of cases well it's been you know, some announced already and, and certainly we expect more of those to come through the, over the coming years i imagine martin that's particularly the case as you move to the smaller funds where 
annuity is is always going to be the end game. It's just a question of how you get there most efficiently. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I think just just picking up on the the theme of size, Hugh, have you got any you know in, in your own mind are there any sort of size limits in terms of where you would or would not consider a longevity swap? So my experience is exclusively in the billion pound plus schemes, but um, what I'm hearing by now is that you can start thinking about longevity swaps at around 250 million. Um, but Martin will be closer to that than I am. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think I think a few things. Obviously, the market developed, and and as all as always with new markets, t- tends to be the bigger funds that um, that, that go first. I, I wouldn't say that what we're now in is a completely standardised market in, in the longevity swap space, but but we're definitely in a market where it's a very well trodden path. And therefore, that lends itself to an easier execution process, and then it kind of opens the market up to, to a much greater universe of schemes. The, the other observation I'd make is there's been a lot of effort over over the past few years to design simpler, more streamlined products that are kind of easier for smaller schemes to access. And the sort of simplifications that we're talking about there are probably in two buckets. Bucket number one is around trying to balance designing a longevity hedge that is close as possible to the benefits that are being paid out from the um, from the scheme but not you know over engineering it to capture every single bit of benefit complexity because you tend to find that that adds to disproportionate cost so striking a balance between a, a hedge that is a good fit but not necessarily a completely perfect fit if that is destroys the economics of the deal and the second bucket is is probably around the um, collateral structures so certainly at the larger end of the um, at the market all of these longevity swaps are heavily collateralized but as you go down to the um, smaller end of the market that's less the case and that's not to say that security isn't an important consideration but it i think it comes more into a cost benefit analysis which is running some of these complicated collateral structures actually incurs a cost and you just need to figure out how proportionate that cost is relative to the additional security that the collateral actually provides. So, so we're starting to see a number of cost-efficient ways of structuring these products, which all help make it more accessible for smaller schemes. Can I add to that that one of the things that makes a longevity swap more attractive to schemes now than 10 years ago when I first started uh, working on them is that we've seen some of those longevity swaps converted into annuities. And so it's very clear that that can happen. Whereas when we were first implementing them, it was a major concern. And we were sort of taking to, you know, quite a leap of faith that it would be possible to convert to an annuity at a later date. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a broader topic there, isn't there, which is trying to put enough future-proofing and general flexibility into these contracts because you never really know what's around the corner. And annuity is the obvious case, but there are things like member options and pension increase exchanges being a case in point, making sure that any reinsurance is sufficiently flexible to be able to amend the thing if some of these exercises are undertaken later on. So Martin, I think, you know, obviously at the, at the moment, COVID-19 is causing probably even more uncertainty than normal around 
current and future mortality rates and life expectancies. Does it still make sense to hedge longevity when there's so much uncertainty? Uh, yeah, and no, a very, very topical question, isn't it? I suppose a number of facets to this. I mean, your first point, uncertainty, clearly key word at the moment. And with uncertainty equals greater risk, and, and particularly in a context where a lot of schemes are, are struggling with funding deficits opening up and more material concerns around covenant risk, etc., then strategically hedging risk still seems, um, you know, very high on the agenda and, and hedging longevity risk, you know, still has a uh, very strong business case attaching to it. That said, kind of if you set, set step aside from the um, long-term strategy point of view, tactically um, keeping your wits about you in terms of the price that you're paying for reinsurance, particularly around longevity at the moment, is clearly important. I think we're all very mindful that the death data is and the projections for longevity outlooks, you know, is a rapidly evolving area, and there's probably some probably natural apprehension about regret risk of pulling the trigger on a, a large volume of transaction reinsurance right now and then in you know six or 12 months looking back and feeling like it was absolutely the wrong time to have done that um i think that said you know we're certainly working with a number of clients that are partway through longevity swap processes at the moment you know and are absolutely continuing those processes on the grounds of it's the right strategic fit and are thinking about whether and how to um to, to put the protection on whether that's deferring until later in the year or potentially doing some tranching of the swaps and putting the protection on gradually over the next one two three years kind of averaging any price adjustments that that come through in the reinsurance pricing clearly it's an area where as i say you need to keep your wits about you so i, I don't think the market will completely stall but i wouldn't be surprised that we see kind of a more gradual entry into the market as i say to get some natural price averaging into the system but it's um yeah as you say a great amount of uncertainty at the moment and something that we're very conscious of at the moment i think for a trustee that regret risk is the key right now because you would feel exposed if you transacted a longevity swap within 18 months God forbid, you find that you've lost 20% of your pensioners and that longevity swap looks, you know, with hindsight at that point to have been a terrible decision and you should have just waited to see what happens with COVID-19. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And there's just kind of natural kind of human behaviour, isn't there, at the moment around some of this stuff. I, um, I also think you need to have a very close look at the uh, population in question just to understand its characteristics, age profile, obviously, in particular, and just really have a um, long, hard think before you pull the trigger on any of this. So, Karen, that was a, lot, a long-winded answer to your question. I, I think we'll still see stuff, but clearly there's a, a lot of thinking to do on the topic right now. Sure. Okay. Martin, as, as some closing thoughts, have you got any pointers for our listeners in terms of how schemes can assess if longevity swaps are right for them? So I suppose th three thoughts. One, you know, as we started the calls, you know, assess the amount of longevity risk exposure that the, uh, that the scheme is actually exposed to. How big is it? How material in the context of the overall risk management plan that the um, trustees and sponsors have got in place and, and think about how it fits into that, those long-term plans. Secondly, I think, you know, understand strategically where the um, where the pension scheme is headed, whether it's targeting an annuity route and thinking about how any longevity swap flows into an annuity over the medium or long term, or whether you're kind of more into long term runoff and you're designing some longevity protection to fit alongside some low risk assets. 
And then thirdly, as we were just touching on, clearly COVID-19 is is very prevalent in conversations at the moment. So there's a kind of ta- very much a tactical overlay as to timing and uh, when's the right time to actually implement some of this stuff. Hugh, what about from, from your perspective? Any pointers for our listeners? For me, it's really an investment decision. Probably one thing I would uh, point out is that buying the annuity doesn't necessarily get rid of a proportionate amount of longevity risk. And so it is really quite important for you to understand where the longevity risk is distributed within your scheme. And so you may find that doing a pensioner buy-in doesn't take that much off the table, whereas doing a longevity swap covering a significant part of your deferred population is much more effective at getting you to a more efficient risk-reward ratio. Okay, interesting point. So to summarise, I think you know, we've, we've heard today from Martin that the longevity swap market remains very busy, and even in the current uncertain times, it can be uh, you know, still appropriate to hedge longevity risk. Hughes helpfully provided some thoughts on scheme characteristics or circumstances that can lead to longevity swaps being a viable option. Um, so that's it for today. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Karen. So you've been listening to the latest edition of the Aon Pensions podcast on providing risk settlement insights to help you size up your de-risking options with me, Karen Gainsford, and my guests, Martin Bird and Hugh Evans of Best Trustees. If you need any further information on Aon Retirement Solutions or risk settlement in particular, you can contact us by visiting our website or email us on talktous at aon.com.